Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Cesari and to the organizers for this uh, for me uh, unexpected honor of being able to uh, address you. I want to start with a uh, earlier episode, an iconic event in the West's troubled history of engagement with the abode of Islam, and this is the invasion by Napoleon Bonaparte of Egypt, July the 21st. 1798, he inflicts a crushing defeat on the Mamluk forces and enters the ancient city of Cairo. This turns out to be a paradigmatic eastern place where he found an urban and societal complexity radically alien to the Enlightenment perfectionism espoused by the scientists and philosophers who accompanied his army. Lacking a central square or forum, or even a supreme place of worship, Cairo presented an agglutinative labyrinth of alleyways and canals, arteries, as someone remarked, without a heart. The largest visible module was the Hara, the quarter, a kind of parish centered on a mosque, a church, or a synagogue. Frenchmen who ventured within the Hara found a claustrophobically intimate and curiously autonomous entity uh, where families argued and intermarried and appointed their own magistrates, night watchmen, and religious personnel. The ruler was acknowledged in sermons but in practice seemed to impinge on nobody's life. Society in these little neighborhood universes was shaped by duty, not individual freedoms or the droit de l'homme the duty to marry, to have children, to serve in a guild, to pray as one's ancestors had always prayed. To the, to the rational encyclopedists in the army of occupation, this arrangement seemed to be not only unscientific, but also a security risk. Shortly after the invasion, an insurgency in those same alleyways killed 300 French soldiers. As with Iraq in our own times, the occupation proved as troublesome as the invasion had been easing. The Mamluk bays might be dead or dispersed, but the resilient polycentrism of Muslim urban life was unaffected. So the great gates and walls which had divided the Haras and which for centuries had been closed every sundown were demolished. The beginnings of a new, more reasonable city were laid down to the west of the old Haras. In due season, Arrow Strait Boulevards, Rondpoint, and Civic Parks became home to a plurality of lighter-skinned entrepreneurs and merchants, Greeks, Sicilians, and other Khawajet, foreign lords. Between the two urban worlds lay the no-man's land of the Esbekia, scene of doubtful bars and brothels, home to every marginal and deracinated individual fleeing regimentation, whether of the East or of the West. In this middling zone, as though in an attempt to knit the two halves into one, appeared uncompromising emblems of the burgeoning modern state. A central post office, the fire brigade, even the famous opera house at which Verdi's Aida had its premiere. Cairo's polarized topography, soon replicated in most metropolitan spaces across the Islamic world, represents in physical form the troubled dimorphism of modernized Muslim life. The old city could not be simply repainted, electrified, and integrated into the European future. Its logic was illogical, 
The society which called it home seemed at best picturesque, at worst a barbarian emblem of the Enlightenment's darkest other, a Semitism wallowing in a sea of laws and responsa, ordered and hierarchalized neither by a savior nor by science. In its refusal of state centralism, its ritualism, its love of privacy and of the autonomy of the extended family unit, it was oriental unreason. It was, the biblically minded remarked, Ishmael, the rejected, wild, Egyptian son of Abraham, whose younger chosen brother now strolled in the elegant shopping streets to the west. The recalcitrant power of uh, working class alleyway Islam survives even now, two centuries later. Today, the Khawajat Agan, ethnically cleansed by Nasser's revolution. But atop the Muqattam hills and in other airy hygienic places far from the decaying labyrinths, the elite remain substantively Western. They live in quarters called Gulf City or Greenland, always with English names, and the imperial tongue is likely to be the language spoken at home. And their gated communities are deliberately and entirely Occidental in their planning and design idiom. Ratio has triumphed again. From this mutual alienation, so palpable from the flight path into Cairo airport, arise many of Islam's current discontents. From the time of Napoleon's insertion of positivist reason, modernity has dichotomized the Muslims, and in the liminal zone between the alternate worlds, the tensions produce not only prostitutes and pederasts, but in our times, religious Puritans who excoriate both universes as equally dislodged and treasonably exiled from authentic belonging. Deep in the ruined haras, old habits at ease with multiplicity and contradiction have in some measure survived. The hashish smoker sits opposite the mosque. The saint's tomb is the scene of riotous and perhaps far from normative religious performances. Muslim women light candles in a uniate church before gathering for the ecstatic zar ritual in a discreet lodgment. Magic is widely practiced and universally feared. Despite the disapproval both of the fundamentalists and of the enlightened Anglophones of Gulf City, hints of an older Levantine diversity linger in the air, recalling a differently adjusted age of faith when charisma was not centrally routinized, when holiness felt more interesting than the control of boundaries, when sainted wonder workers drew more crowds than the Hadith expert on the radio. The membrane between these enchanted and dis disenchanted forms of life has been productive of monovocal religion. Always, historically, a minority space occupied by a Tamian zealotry, seen as ill-bred and simplistic by the old ulama, this has been widened by a modernity which insists on the current unviability of the medieval Sharia vision. On a site once occupied by a brothel catering to French troopers, stands the Masjid al-Ataba, a node of bearded and veiled Puritanism. The old transgressiveness which characterized the membrane has given way to something more ontological. The cognitive dissonance between the two Kairos is enabling, for the first time in Egyptian history, a reductive fundamentalism which is slowly becoming normative and not exceptional. From the Muqattam hills arises the hortatory call to modernization. The city is susurrated by media messages of progress, women's rights, and other vaunted freedoms. The old haras, of course, cannot broadcast back. Their culture, which gives their lives a rich and meaningful texture, is not heard by the elites, still less by the Western agencies which anxiously campaign for reform in these worrisome Arab places. 
Thus, the wreck of Muslim sociality in Old Cairo continues to be the object of discursive violence from local and global elites. And its own voice, dismissed now by Salafism as well, is hardly imagined. Napoleon's Mission Civilatrice, after two centuries still a work in progress, seems too rational and scientific to be dialogical with human subjects mired in so alien a folk consciousness. It's like the juxtaposition of an organic living thing with an efficient machine. There seems to be no common language other than perhaps that of efficiency itself. Let us then imaginatively ventriloquize for these unheard tenement dwellers who are certainly not among us in today's charmed circle of our learned academic commentariat. The urban poor of the Darul Islam, I've suggested, inherit the ruins of a culture which was devout but which sustainably managed distinctive forms of plurality. From a window at my Al-Azhar hostel, one could hear a Franciscan bell tolling the Angelus every morning. Ironically, since Pope Calixtus had initiated this as an anti-Muslim practice. But from a Cambridge college, one will not hear the Adhan, for it is illegal. In a deeper alleyway near the Azhar, I found a ruined synagogue, now an encampment for poor rural migrants. Modernity, the French Grande Armée's enlightenment, with its insistence on public religious equality or indifference, seems to have cataclysmically reduced a diversity, both Muslim and Abrahamic, which was once a constitutive reality. My question for this lecture then starts with this antinomy, which in a sense is just a local Islamic iteration of the familiar paradox of globalization. In the name of enabling infinite choices for the individual, we become generic. Majorities enabled by the agencies of the nation state and by modern media tend to be irresistible hegemons. But in invoking the lexicon of reason and pluralism, we beg the question of which rationality, whose pluralism? For pre-modern Islam, famously diverse and polycentric, although surely not quite as amorphous as Shihab Ahmad has suggested in a recent book, evidently encompassed theologies and laws which enabled difference, some more than others. So it's simply banal to claim that the Sharia permits plurality, and hardly less banal to observe that it is so disparate a legal culture, its jurisprudential techniques so protean that one can find most things, or at least their starting point, if one really sets out to look for them. Whether Islam, however, this, however this vague thing might be articulated, can incorporate a pluralism is therefore not a question, and shouldn't detain us today. Modern reformist pluralisms, sometimes based on the cognitive aims of Islamic law, maqasid al-sharia, or on the notion of necessity and emergency, nawazil, or even on prioritizing Meccan over Medinan episodes of the founder's mission, are extensively and persuasively theorized, although less widely disseminated. And Jocelyn Cesari has ably mapped many of them in her book, The Awakening of Muslim Democracy. For Muslims, the harder dispute instead is likely to hinge on three related queries which have to be posed before uh, the normativity of these responses can be mooted. Firstly, is positively engaging with difference truly a recurrent rather than an exceptional consequence of scriptural teaching? Secondly, if normative Muslim pluralisms of this kind exist, do they include forms which can be included in the overlapping consensus required by modern liberal theories of national and international order? Thirdly, what are the prospects for this 
shall we say, clash of pluralisms, liberal and Muslim, in the current environment of retreat from liberal models across the Western world. So as you can see, my preliminary account of Cairo's dichotomized social topography will lead us on in a plurality of directions, but these are necessary to enable my final hip hypothesis, which will be of a theological rather than a historical or sociological flavor, and will also have to be cautious and provisional, reflecting both the difficulty of defining Muslim normativities and the current rapid flux in which Islamic and Western habits of othering are being reshaped. So, to the first of our questions, Cairo's old diversity, what did pre-colonial Muslims mean by it? Did it spring ultimately from a teaching of contempt? Antonio Bosanquet has recently reminded us that the medieval manuals on Dhimma comprise perfectionist expressions of protest rather than records of actual fact and, uh, and practice. Anwar Emon, noting the great responsiveness of the laws to context, identifies them not so much as theologically driven fixities, but as empirical constructs designed to protect the rule of law in polities in which, as today, elites are always hegemonic. More instructive than the jurist's abstract theories is the archivally doc documented praxis of Qadi courts and the administration of the Ottoman so-called millet system. And this latter arrangement has been investigated by Karen Barkey in her study of Ottoman diversity management entitled Empire of Difference. She says, the centuries of Pax Ottomanica were relatively calm and free of ethnic or religious strife. She notes this in framing her question with the main intolerance, as she points out, coming from Christians direct against Jews who understandably preferred to live in Muslim neighborhoods. The empire was a huge palimpsest over which different communities wrote their own scripts. It included sprawling networks of Sunnis, Bektashis, Gypsies, Guild fraternities, Naqshbandis, and all the Muslim others, uh, but also stable unbelieving ecologies of which the Orthodox, Armenian, and Jewish were formally constituted as parts of the polity through the imperial grant of Berat appointments to communal leaders. Patriarchs were landed to Marriotts and tax farmers, and their powers over their flocks was, were far greater than those envisaged for religious modules in modern liberal democracies. They administered justice, determined laws insofar as these applied to co-religionists, and collected taxes for the Sultan. Minorities, as at Cairo, inhabited their own autonomous urban neighborhoods and other spaces as well, including distinct sectors of the craft guilds. In this world, religionists imagined the Ottoman domain as a Jewish landscape, or a Christian one, or an Islamic one. All were valid and stable perceptions, although the finally controlling hand of the ruler, entitled Alem Pena, refuge of the world, was always Islamic, which seemed metabolically correct. After all, only Muslims revered the founders of all the empire's official religions. This stable diversity management paradigm certainly did not comprise the only potential reading of the Islamic juridical library. And yet, since it endured for so many centuries under the aegis of a policy that came to assume caliphal claims, it was as normatively Muslim as any other. It's regularly cited as proof of Islam's recurrent desire for a world of stable difference, for instance, by modern Balkan Muslim historians who feel threatened by Christian violence or Palestinians who fear the same from Jews, and has occasionally inspired Europeans eternally anxious about their own continent 
which under Christian and then secular uh, scientific auspices seem to struggle with plurality more than its Ottoman rivals. As Noel Malcolm shows in a forthcoming book, 17th century Europeans polemicizing about their religious civil wars frequently inculcated a guilty introspection by describing the apparently successful Ottoman Muslim alternative. In the Age of Enlightenment, Goethe and Rousseau experimented with a similar trope. And in the aftermath of the Second World War, Arnold Toynbee, documenting the specifically European, Darwinian, and Enlightenment etiology of the recent mayhem, wrote this. The Islamic tradition would seem to be a better ideal for meeting the social need of the times than the Western tradition. However, the regnant nation-state paradigm and the usual Rawlsian strictures on the institutionalizing of modular difference are unlikely to tolerate minorities writing as thickly as they did upon the Ottoman palimpsest. Liberalism cannot devolve so much authority to minorities. The modern state monopolizes lawmaking, making only a few grudging and nowadays hugely contested concessions to halachic and sharia tribunals or in North America to residual Native American codes. Under the sultans, Christian women's dress was regulated by the Christian systems. In the modern European state, Muslim women's dress is increasingly a matter for government decision-making. We shall have more to say about this paradox of liberalism in a few minutes' time. But the most essential disjuncture between Ottoman and contemporary frameworks of minority governance is that the Ottomans presupposed the indefinite perpetuity of overwritten scripts derived from alternate scriptures which had been variously acknowledged in the Qur'an. Presumptively, the minorities were allowed to be abidingly different because the ethics and codes of the people of the book were obscurely derived from a revelation which came from God, albeit in an earlier and abrogated redaction. Christians and Jews could drink wine because God had, in past prophetic ages, not seen fit to prohibit, to, to prohibit it. This is the fiqh category of shara'ir, man qablana, the revealed codes of those who came before us. Because Islam's own laws were constantly debated and no canon of statutes ever appeared before the modern period, it seemed natural to tolerate radical judicial and ethical heteronomy. Even God's real law, deduced as the fiqh, was thought to represent a work in progress. In other words, the Ottoman agglomeration of rules and congregations presumed a foundational rather than a customary pluralism. Minorities cherished not only folkways, but insisted that they were privileged harbingers of a metaphysical truth which coordinated the modus vivendi. Contemporary ideas of subjecting all laws and social practices to some overarching Kantian yardstick were entirely absent. Each script which overlay the well-protected domains was a complete universe, entire of itself, even though communities were vertically linked to the sublime port by various security and fiscal mechanisms. The modules were not equal, since the laws imposed sumptuary, testimonial, and other disabilities on non-Muslims. But in compensation, these modules enjoyed a far greater degree of autonomy, presumption of unique rightness, and assurance about the identity of their descendants than is feasible in a secular liberal state. This, to transpose the argument now into a theological key, seems to comprise a defining aspect of the charism of Ishmael. Emmanuel Levinas famously distinguishes Athens from Jerusalem by identifying Odysseus as the European wanderer who returns to his home and hence to resolution and philosophical closure. 
while Abraham, as Jewish wanderer, migrates into alterity. Talmudic discursiveness therefore rejects closure and embraces indeterminacy. In the case of Ishmael, we would add that if Jerusalem is the sign of a people, or for Christians of the Messiah who decisively discloses a singular irrevocable truth and is closure incarnate, then the Meccan sanctuary is the alterity into which Ishmael was exiled, but whose black stone signifies the primordial covenant itself. It is the place of congregation of souls before nations and religions were instantiated. The Ishmaelite migration, then, is simultaneously to same and other. He is Odysseus, but also Abraham. His legal codes will seek conclusions, unlike the beloved Talmud of Levinas, even though these are almost all conditional and open to contest. And this neatly encapsulates the typical pre-modern climate of Islamic legal and theological argument, which was described recently by Thomas Bauer as the culture of ambiguity. So Muslim juridical and soteriological debates, on the other, are not liable to ecclesiastical closure, for there is no magisterial center, nor to the kind of rabbinical assurance that holds that without either temple or messiah, all is indeterminate and provisional. Certain sharia truths are mohkam or qatai, decisive and unambiguous, and yet these occupy only a small fraction of the manuals of law, which are not shy in describing their verdicts, mostly al-zanni, or conjectural. It was this culture of ambiguity which enabled the thick pluralisms of Ottoman Cairo. By contrast, the pluralism of modern states appears decidedly thin, being based not on a putative revelation, but on prudential and pragmatic techniques for social management, rooted in the insistence that the state be innocent of any metaphysical truth. As the French government has noted in its inheritance of the Cour Napoléon, an ethico-legal national system based on reason and science will tend to seek singular outcomes, since reason, unlike the annoyingly polysemic oracles of revelation, insists that only one truth can be correct. And so the state, buoyed by a triumphalist rationalism, knows how Muslim women should dress better than the women themselves. The great sanctuary of Ishmael is also the site at which this text of difficult polysemy is disclosed. Qur'an means not reason, but recital, logos, more or less, as kalamullahil qadim, it is uncreated. And so Ishmael's city is the point where space-time itself is interrupted and the unseen audibly appears. It is this logos which emerges as the point of light in every prayer niche, in every little Kyrene mosque, reconnecting tired humans with ontology. As light, it's universal and formless. The metatext has no race or gender, and its temple is in the symbolic hearth of humanity, the mother of cities. So Ishmael and Hajar, interred in the sanctuary, present the summative and universal evolutions of Abraham's purpose. The blood of Egypt, the Bible symbol of unclean alterity, is mingled with his own so that the Ishmaelite Hadrian prophet can one day declare in the sanctuary, I am sent to all mankind. So the millet system, the protean flux of Sharia discourse, and the many-centered maze of Islamic urban forms can be seen as the interrelated outcomes of a theology which purposively includes alterity. Fred Donner is so taken by the ecumenicism of the Qur'an that he proposes that early Islam was a kind of inclusive monotheistic piety which for generations included Christians and Jews, 
within its ranks. The prophetic biography repeats the insistence that the particularism of Arab tribes is to be overcome. Certainly, the founders' apostles conspicuously include Persians, Abyssinians, and Byzantines, as it were in proleptic anticipation of Islamic imperial expansion and inclusion. The Logos, when its Arabic is read, is also a psalm to difference. Shining first in a town of paradigmatic Arabian particularity, the text embeds a sweeping and universal purport, beginning with praise to God, who is titled Lord of the Worlds. The ontology of the scripture as Logos is, as Louis Massignon showed, prior in significance to its discursive content. But the Logos, shining in the mihrabs of Egypt and now also resonating in the streets thanks to Radio Cairo, demonstrates the further enigma referred to by Patricia Croner with her observations about its non-referentiality. The scripture is readily detached from its real or legendary sits im Leben. It is a universalizing commentary on the Historia Monotheistica, affirming the exemplum figures of the Bible, but also, in a way, puzzling, given its Western Arabian, very provincial cradle, vaulting over them with the enunciation of a universal providence, which, as it says, has sent a guide to every people. The text exuberantly instructs us to contemplate the diversity of the natural world and humanity. The difference of your languages and colors is of God's signs. The Logos brought in the most monocultural of Arabian places by the very Arabian man of praise is a threnody of difference which praises the world as a carnival of signifiers. Hebrew, biblical, and midrashic tales are repristinated and reconfigured, but without the master signifier of the particularist people. The Babel legend, constructed by the biblical authors as a sign that linguistic multiplicity is a punishment, is a locus classicus for monoculturalist readings of the Bible since the time of Josephus. Yet the story is absent from the Qur'an, which instead presents linguistic multiplicity as a grace, plurality, not univocality is God's way in creation. Those who, like Patricia Croner, again, like to see nascent Islam as an Arab nativism, have not noticed that the text does not mention the Arab people once. It's distinctive in its indifference to its own population. So Old Cairo, which looked to Napoleon scientists like a body without arteries but no heart, does indeed have a heart the Logos refulgent in the mihrabs and the little roadways which the scientists could not hear, but which the Kyrian working classes continue to hear in every waking moment. Despite its radical outward confusion and unreason, the old city is unified by revelation, and the ideologies of progress in the past two centuries have failed to produce a successful rival. Ishmael, the half-Gentile sign of Islam's inclusiveness, presides over a strong heterogeneity, made possible ultimately by a vertical integration, not to the state, but to the Muslim God. So our quest as anxious moderns, I think, cannot be for an Islamic pluralism, but rather for a space-permitting dialogue between an already empirically and scripturally existent Ishmaelite habit of pluralism with the pluralisms which are taken to be a defining constituent of modern society. To return to our geographical trope, can the no-man's land between old and new Cairo be home not only to prostitutes and fundamentalists, but to stable and moral hybrids whose discourse is audible on both sides? 
Unfortunately, any such dialogue or any claimed cohabitation of a home of overlapping consensus is complexified by the major erosion of Islamic pluralisms by modernity. We've already observed how the onset of modern nation state narratives and techniques served to diminish or terminate minority existence in Cairo. And the same can be observed by visitors to Istanbul's former Greek quarters, or an ex-Jewish ex Mellah in Morocco, or districts of Lahore, um, historically shaped by a Sikh presence. Mark Mazowa calls his book on Salonika, City of Ghosts. The Westphalian state assumes a paradigm of national belonging and what Rawls calls a presumption of consensus, and as Europe's 20th century demonstrated, boasts an uneven record often tending to work towards the dilution, assimilation, or removal of modules of significant difference. Saleh ben Habib, born among Istanbul Sephardim, has interestingly discussed this loss of what she calls cosmopolitanism. In very recent times, the Muslim nation-state has further tightened the permitted paradigms of belonging by securitizing the state's relationship with faith. Ataturk was the precursor with his paradoxically simultaneous creation of a secular polity and a nationalized religious hierarchy. Elsewhere, in most Muslim countries now, particularly since 9-11, the hegemonic elites have worked to create a unified, compliant Islamic normativity and a hierarchy of state seminaries whose graduates read out centrally issued sermons preaching obedience to the regime and avoiding issues such as poverty and social injustice. Independent homilies are impossible, and the ancient model of circles of instruction in mosques or madrasas, in which scriptural interpretation could be pursued entirely free of sultanic supervision, has become unusual or non-existent. Again, modernization has proved allergic to heteronomy. This modernized, depluralized Islam, reconfigured by state actors against an insurrectionist Salafism, which is itself inimical to diversity, is now asked to theorize and deliver a modern discourse of a Muslim pluralism. In what way is this a feasible demand? Well, this has become one of the momentous global questions of our time, and some very distinguished writing is already going on. I've already mentioned Anwar Emon's close discussion of Islamicate historical practice towards minorities. He's also written on Muslim versions of natural law theory and the tradition's capacity to engage with systems which purport to be grounded in reason alone. There's also Andrew Marsh's ambitious monograph, Islam and Liberal Citizenship, The Search for an Overlapping Consensus. Marsh confesses his outsider status, but concludes that such a consensus can be found. We have several times referred to the Rawlsian doctrine of the overlapping consensus, and it seems appropriate now to probe more technically into claims for the Sharia's capacity to partake in this. The consensus in question largely replaces older and more ambitious Enlightenment convictions about the objective discernibility of public reason, with the late 20th century adversion to the preferences of good people a category which Rawls leaves fairly indeterminate, but which is presumptively the post-Enlightenment reasonable elite of Anglo-America. Religion, perhaps notably uh, non-Western religion, understandably chafes under this authority and across the Muslim world and elsewhere, Islamists in particular, seeing this presumption of Occidental normativity and imperial and demeaning hegemonic othering and objectification of themselves. 
religions defined as comprehensive doctrines are expected in the Western-dominated globalized order to reinvent themselves in terms acceptable to the good people to join the alleged global consensus on rights and liberties. Islam is naturally not alone in producing dissidents against this prescriptive view of global citizenship. Despite a common trope which holds that Islam, possessed of its own public law in the form of the Sharia, is distinctively or uniquely troubling to the Enlightenment vision of a faith-neutral public space which relegates religion to a sphere of private choices, most and perhaps all religions insist that their moral vision has implications for believers' proper action in the public square. Hence, of the 53 sovereign legislatures of the Commonwealth, 35 deem homosexuality a criminal act, typically because of the views of religiously active populations. Secretary-General Banneris Scotland, trained in North London, critiques the absence of a public reason in those countries akin to her own. Again, the question is, whose justice, which rationality? McIntyre, while purportedly adverse to relativism, reminds us that rationality is not neutral, but is always shaped by tradition. Baroness Scotland's public reasons are shaped by her tradition. The public reasons of Nigerian bishops are taken to be no less reasonable, but are rooted in a different conceptual scheme. To break this kind of impasse, McIntyre offers a sort of evolutionary hope that the repeated encounter of rival social beliefs will produce an epistemic crisis in some, yielding a convergence in the longer term. Dissidents will finally be outnarrated. A non-Western difference may be tolerated as simply symptomatic of a time deficit. Among Muslims, equipped, as we've seen already, with their own uh, different pluralistic tradition, this epistemic crisis has been well advanced since Napoleon's time, accounting for the compliant modernism voiced by the inhabitants of the gated communities on the Mokhattam Hills and the anti-traditionalism of the elite theorists who compose, for instance, the Arab Human Development Reports, which, as Joseph Massad has shown, consistently exclude indigenous Arab definitions of human fulfillment. Public reasons, as articulated internationally, are those of Western elite consensus and fail to consult cultural alterities. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was originally drafted by Charles Malik, the generally anti-Muslim founder of the Lebanese Falange. For this Catholic revanchist, Islam, having fallen at the hurdle of Mu'tazilism, could neither produce real universals nor recognize them. Malik follows a line of cultured despisers stretching back to Renan and forward to Ratzinger in our own times, which imagines that Muslim theology with its unshakably high view of revelation and its Asharite command ethics is the primal paradigm of the anti-rationalist other of Latin Christendom and the Lumière which supplanted it. Of all religious traditions, it is the darkest of others and should be the most vigorously excluded from our public conversations. Hence Newt Gingrich's strangely fearful description of Sharia as a mortal threat to America and the legal prescriptions of something called Sharia law in a number of US states. It seems to be an unstable, corrosive substance which somehow threatens the essential paradigms of the Constitution. Yet recent work on Asharism and Islamic law shows that Islam does indeed very much recognize the validity of public reason arguments. Here, for instance, are the words of Josef van Es of Tübingen. Christianity speaks of the mysteries of faith. Islam has nothing like that. 
For St. Paul, reason belongs to the realm of the flesh. For Muslims, reason, aql, has always been the chief faculty granted human beings by God. And Muhammad Fadl, drawing on an abundance of scriptural and medieval proofs, concludes that Islamic jurisprudence grew to recognize the legitimacy of rulemaking based on arguments whose premises, while consistent with revelation, were non-revelatory, and therefore that Islamic law, as a historical matter, recognized the legitimacy of public reason arguments. In the later centuries of Islam, Maturidi tradition in particular, according to Sabina Schmidtke, still rather marginalized in Oriental studies, was well known for its rationalizing epistemology. Islam begins with a revelation which deploys, which itself deploys reasoned arguments, which came to be known as Nazar, Ilzam, and grows through time to a very acute emphasis on the principle of reason and, as Amon understands it, natural law. And whereas the rights considered innate by secular liberal theory prove hard for secular philosophy to define, appearing as attempts to conjure universals and intrinsic value from the dumb, dead matter of the world, the Maturidi tradition affirms rights as innate in all human beings, whatever their later religious trajectory. This is the principle of Ismatil Adamiya, the inherent inviolability of all of Adamic descent, which has been studied um, by Recep Shenturk, for instance. Muslim theology, and here one must include clearly Jewish and Christian theologies as well, turns out to be rather good at generating reasoned moral universals and the presumption of human equality and rights, perhaps rather more ably or thickly than secular modernity in its current philosophical state. With this twin-pointed sword, Muslims evidently can join the public discussion. Their comprehensive doctrines, looked at askance by many atheist partners, turned out turn out to yield very thick public reasons. Rorty dismisses Kantian grounds for altruism in favor of a Whiggish sort of historical progressism. What is better is what we feel we have conscientiously progressed towards. Again, this is likely to persuade only inhabitants of his own silo. But theism does seem to furnish better grounds, and if its arguments interrogate some of the social beliefs to which Rorty's fellow silo dwellers have migrated, then it's just offered the prospect of widening and invigorating the overlapping consensus. So it's evident that there are cases where a Sharia discourse might, with different degrees of success, enter the public square and contribute to what Rawls calls fair social cooperation. Many could be imagined, so many, that one is tempted to consider secularist presumptions of religious irrationality and satiric centricity as prejudicial. Sharia, particularly in its Hanafi and Maturidi expression, the Ottoman articulation, which proposes al-asl al-ta'lil, that there is a presumption that God's laws are rational and have public reason explications, turns out to be eminently, though not in every case, suited to participation in liberal democratic discussions, despite the presumptions of Ratzinger and Gingrich. We need to press a little further here. Emon, March and Fadil confirm our sense that this polycentric tradition can host burdens of proof sufficient to access our liberal public square. However, their works predate the most recent shift in Occidental discourse, We've already noted the shrinking of Islamic plurivocality ensuing from the governmentalization of Islam in the Muslim world. We should observe that the Western liberal universe is also in a condition of flux. 
Muslims instructed to be pluralistic bring their offerings to a table which to them seems increasingly non-rational and non-secular. In his major January the 10th address to students at the American University in Cairo, an academy for children of Egypt's Anglophone governance elite, Mike Pompeo explained how his evangelical religious beliefs shape his policy in the Middle East. He always keeps a Bible on his desk, and he knows that his God wants him to punish Iran and stand by Israel. The intense religionizing of the discourse of the West's exemplary Enlightenment Republic is widely noted in the Muslim world nowadays, where commentators are struggling to interpret the current Christianization of a great Satan, which continues to urge religion-state separation in Muslim countries. However, this and its attendant chauvinism should not logically compel a Muslim retreat from the principle of a global conversation of public reasons, however unreasonable and one-sided the West's public reasons might seem to be. Here in Europe, where Muslims are also asked to exchange their own pluralism for one of Western making, there is a cognate and no less rapid transformation afoot. The growing visibility of Muslim minorities and a recent increase in the number of refugees and asylum seekers has been a major factor in the rise of national populism across the continent. A recent Chatham House survey shows that most British people want to see an end to all Muslim immigration. In Germany, 60% of the population claim that Islam does not belong in their country, a view conspicuously supported by the Minister of the Interior. The recent study by Roger Etwell and Matthew Goodwin on national populism points to a new style of politics across Europe, Islamophobic, pro-Israel, pro-gay and Eurosceptic, which cannot be simply classified as right-wing. Muslimness is specifically targeted. Norway's Minister of Immigration recently told Muslims, here we eat pork, drink alcohol and show our faces. You must abide by our values, laws and regulations that are in Norway when you come here. In Italy, Matteo Salvini becomes angry with the Muslim surname of the winner of the Sanremo song competition. Across the continent, hijab bans smack communities into remembering their own deplorability. In England, Muslims hoping to join the rational public square are reminded that 31% of Leave voters accept the Great Replacement Theory, which holds that elites are plotting to replace the indigenous working classes with low-salary Muslim immigrants. So we might say, perhaps, that secular reason has reasons that reason knows nothing of. The public square has simply not become what rules Habermas and Fukuyama expected in predicting the steady onward march of tolerant rationality. And as Eatwell and Goodwin observe, populism is growing and is not going to vanish anytime soon. Surrounded by such cultured despisers on the continent, which is almost a synonym for liberal democracy, but in which liberalism is becoming coercive and the overlapping consensus has shipped, shifted markedly, Muslims are nonetheless instructed by elites not to retreat into isolation, but to iterate a pluralism of an intelligibly Western kind. However, to the confusion of governments, they are not a single pair of ears. Muslims in Europe are already displaying the polycentric patterns of Cairo. Metropolitan Islam uh, here is startlingly heteronomic. The bazaars of Birmingham and Hamburg are a polyglot carnival. The cadences of the Qur'an hang significantly in the air. 
Yet the deep defining charism of Ishmael has not been disguised. And here, in defense of the old Kyrene Hara dwellers, with their patience and their qualified tolerance, we would propose a return to the Ishmael and Hajar trope, denoting the poor, the refugee and asylum seeker, the ethnically problematic, the single mother, uh, recalling that the Muslim God announces, I am with the brokenhearted. The voiceless urban poor of Cairo, concurrently disdained by Western monoculturalists and by Muslim fundamentalists, are likely, from this liberative scriptural optic, to be the privileged site of divine pleasure and support. As coercive liberal elites demand compliance with their social beliefs in the name of pluralism, Muslim theology increasingly stresses this divine withness. Islamic theology, like biblical equivalents, announces a God who favors not governance elites, neoliberal and usurious capital concentration, or the tribal jahiliya of national populism, but the victims of all these things. These victims stubbornly refuse a pluralism which in reality demands nothing other than compliance. And so they are now challenged to present as Ishmaelite paradigms of faithful outsideness, a theology of the great sanctuary, which allows intersubjectivity and heteronomy to thrive in an age of reducing cultures, species, forms of life, and the other vestigia day which scripture commands us to celebrate and not to displace.